0: Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. In the year 2000, David Irving sued Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt for defamation. In her 1994 book, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, Professor Lipstadt had called Irving a Holocaust denier and a falsifier of history. The defense set out to prove that Professor Lipstadt's facts were correct. Expert witnesses combed through Irving's research since the 1980s and found that he had deliberately manipulated the historical record, inserting, omitting, or mistranslating words from original source material— all to support his ludicrous claims that most of the evidence of the Holocaust had been invented after the war. Needless to say, Professor Lipstadt was cleared of the charges against her. Here to discuss the impact of that trial is someone who was very much behind the scenes and occasionally in the courtroom during the proceedings, AJC CEO David Harris. David, welcome to People of the Pod.
1: Thank you, Manya. Good to be here.
0: Before we begin this conversation, I want to remind our listeners, in case they missed it, that we did do a special episode earlier this week about the hostage situation at a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. AJC is calling on the Biden administration to develop a national plan to fight the kind of domestic anti-Semitism we saw in Texas. I'd like to ask you, David, when you first heard about the standoff at Congregation Beth Israel, what went through your mind?
1: Several things. First of all, shock. On the other hand, I must say little surprise. Terror, fear, relief when the authorities managed to solve the situation, and now enduringly anger, outrage that this kind of thing can happen. And of course, the more we learn, uh, the more upsetting it is. If you simply follow the words of his brother in England, Malik Akram was not just any person brother said he had a criminal record. He was known to police. He was known to counterterrorism authorities. So how in the world was this person able to leave the United Kingdom, board a plane, arrive at JFK Airport in New York, enter the United States, and then, of course, eventually make his way to Texas. Oh, and by the way, along the way, somehow get hold of a weapon. And then, of course, enter Congregation Beth Israel and... The details that followed are by now well-known. Anger also at the initial FBI reaction, which was to suggest that this was somehow a lone, isolated incident in which the synagogue and the Jewish nature of the venue were actually incidental, not central to the unfolding story. Now, Yet again, we have the same issue when it comes to non-white supremacist non-neo-Nazi attacks on Jews. All of a sudden, the excuse machine, the ambiguity machine, the rationalization machine, whatever it may be, comes into play and we're confronted with all of this kind of cloudiness when it should have been painfully obvious. A synagogue is a Jewish site. Shabbat is a Jewish moment in the week. People inside that Jewish site on Shabbat are Jewish worshipers. So to believe that this might have been randomly picked is absurd. Fortunately now, the language has changed by the authorities, by the way, both here and in Britain. But the anger, the outrage endure as they should and as they must.
0: I should point our listeners to an incredibly moving column by Deborah Lipstadt in the New York Times this week in which she talks about the sheer courage that it takes to attend synagogue in the wake of an attack like this. I should note that Professor Lipstadt is President Biden's nominee for a Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Antisemitism Overseas, a State Department position that is now an ambassador-level post and requires Senate confirmation. That confirmation has been stalled for months, and AJC is pressing the Senate to stop that delay. David, when did you first meet Professor Lipstadt?
1: I feel like I've known her forever, so I can't pinpoint the moment. But our professional lives have intersected for decades. And on various occasions, she's made herself available to American Jewish Committee, to audiences, to consultations. So it's many years.
0: And when did you first learn about this defamation suit against her and who was bringing the defamation suit against her?
1: Oh, very early on. By the way, it's important to point out to People of the Pod listeners something that may strike at least the American listeners as odd. In your opening, you spoke about the fact that she, Deborah Lipstadt, had to defend her claim. In Britain, it's precisely because he, David Irving, brought the lawsuit very consciously in Britain, not the United States. In doing so, the libel laws are reversed in terms of proof. It's not he who had to prove in court his case. It's she who had to prove in the British court her case. In other words, the stakes in this case could not have been higher. It was not just about Deborah Lipstadt or what she wrote. What was in the docket, if you will, was actually the truth about the Holocaust. If the verdict in this case had been anything other than a resounding unequivocal defeat of David Irving, the shockwaves would have been worldwide and would be felt until this day. So why did we get involved? And our involvement went way deeper than the fact that I sat in the courtroom for a day or two. It went way deeper. It went way deeper for two reasons. One, because we knew Deborah Lipstadt. We knew her integrity. We knew her scholarship. And secondly, because, as I said a moment ago, we understood The stakes involved, obviously, directly affected Deborah, but went way beyond. She should not have to face this alone in a courtroom. And AJC decided we would stand with her, sit with her, shoulder to shoulder, in a whole variety of ways, which I'm happy to talk about.
0: Please do. I mean, what roles did we play?
1: Well, as Jewish community leaders sort of grasped uh, the nature of the case— understood that again, the proof was flipped in a British court compared to an American court. Several of us from various organizations gathered here at HAC's building in New York to discuss what should we do. And we determined as a group that we had to help support her, including financially. That until that point, incredibly talented lawyers were helping her pro bono. But the case was going to be so big so extensive, so high stakes that the law firm had to charge. So we decided that we would help raise the funds for her legal defense. And at that meeting, unexpectedly, I was asked to chair that global effort to raise the funds. So yes, it was in the AJC building. Yes, I was CEO of AJC, but we saw this as transcending any organization. And in the course of the ensuing year and years, we very quietly raised the funds necessary for her legal defense. At AJC, we went a step further. We made the initial contribution from our own reserves to the fund. At the time, it was $50,000, on top of which our future president made an additional gift of his own. And then thirdly, we launched a fundraising effort among our own staff at AJC. So the first three gifts to this fund were actually from AJC as an institution, a top lay leader of AJC, and then what the staff collected among ourselves. And we felt that we should do this to set an example because we believed in the cause. And then, and only then, did we go out and raise the money. And precisely because David Irving was going to portray himself, we knew, as this one lonely little guy up against this powerful, global Jewish community, we knew that we had to keep the whole fundraising effort a secret. Otherwise, he would try and use it and abuse it and misrepresent it. And so, in a world where there are few secrets today, we managed during the entire period of the trial several years to keep it completely quiet. It never appeared anywhere, nowhere in the media or anywhere else. And her lawyers were fully funded, they were outstanding lawyers. The case is a model, I think, in the legal world. And the ultimate verdict was a resounding defeat for David Irving, who, by the way, did not even then go through the effort of trying to appeal it. And that was that. And then, of course, Deborah wrote her book. From the book came a Hollywood-produced movie. And for once, the good guy, the good guys, (laughs) the good side, won. Convincingly, won.
0: I'm curious, what if she had lost? I mean, what was at stake? Can you give us a doomsday scenario?
1: Insofar as David Irving himself, who I have to call, even to be charitable, a pseudo-historian, if not a charlatan historian, let him sue me for that one, if any of his assertions, and you mentioned a few in your opening question, if any of his assertions had been found plausibly true, possibly true, partially true. Just imagine the implications of that. What was at stake here was the very notion that Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933. He unleashed what in German is called the Enlosung, the final solution, which by 1945 had witnessed an unprecedented genocide of a people. Six million of nine million European Jews were systematically Industrially annihilated, including 1.5 million children, in sites whose names have become infamous in world history, from Auschwitz and Birkenau to Treblinka to Bergen Belsen to Babiar to Buchenwald to Dachau. I can keep going. All of that, manyo was at stake. All of that hung in the balance because his questioning. Did these camps really exist? Was Zyklon B really a poison gas? Were Jews really mass murdered? All of those things had been called into question by him, either directly or indirectly. That was what was on trial. And Deborah Lipstadt was there because she, to her everlasting credit, had called him out on it. She had the courage and the conviction. And by the way, the credentials as an outstanding Holocaust scholar, a tenured professor at Emory University, to do so. And I think all of us, Jews and non-Jews alike, who are committed to the preservation of history, and this history in particular, owe a debt of gratitude to Deborah that's almost beyond description. I mean, words sort of fail me because words become inadequate. She, in that London courtroom, which I visited, which other AJC colleagues visited. And by the way, a big shout out to AJC Atlanta. They knew her very well from her connection to Emory. And within our AJC Atlanta office and among our lay leaders, they basically created a schedule where every week or two weeks or three weeks, another member of the AJC community would travel from Atlanta to be in London, to sit in the courtroom. If Deborah was up for it, to take her out for dinner or for a drink. In other words, to try and ensure that she never, ever felt alone. That was the AJC goal. And I'm immensely proud, not just of our fundraising responsibility, but also of the fact that on a very human level, we were there day in and day out until the verdict came.
0: At the time, were there any clues of other expressions of anti-Semitism by David Irving? In other words, Had he proved himself to be an anti-Semite in other ways besides Holocaust denial?
1: The one who would have (laughs) the files of this would be Deborah Lipstadt, of course. But I can tell you this, though it's now, you know, two decades and more in the past. When this court action surfaced, it was not as if David Irving was a brand new name to all of us. All of us, at least in this part of the world, all of us knew him. We knew of him. We had heard of him. We had heard some of his other allegations. And the danger of David Irving was not just in what he said, Manya. There are a lot of people out there then and now who say this stuff. The Holocaust never happened. The numbers are exaggerated. The conditions weren't as bad as it's being described. The Jews are manipulating the Holocaust for their own purposes. Whatever the assertions and allegations are, David Irving was not alone then or now, but, and it's a huge but, he cloaked himself in an aura of, quote, respectability. He didn't just try and cater to the lunatics on the far extremes of society. You know, that part's easy. Anyone can do it. But they're talking only to a very small group of people and they're egging them on. Dangerous, but maybe containable. David Irving was different. David Irving went into mainstream society, masqueraded himself as some highly credentialed historian and scholar, and then tried to present his material not just as red meat to the extremes, but also as a potential alternative narrative of history to more mainstream consumers. That was the danger of David Irving.
0: As you said, he's not alone. We still see remnants of Holocaust denial and a whole new wave of Holocaust distortion by opponents of mask and vaccine mandates during the pandemic, is distortion just as dangerous as denial?
1: Let me put it this way. Distortion is dangerous, period, exclamation point, full stop. And one has to ask oneself, why is there this global industry, if you will, that for years and years and years has been focused on trying to distort, on trying to deny on trying to twist the history of the Holocaust. Why? Why are these people who are relentless and obsessed about, by the way, what may be the most proven event in modern history? The evidence for the Holocaust is limitless. You know, it's one thing to talk about a 12th century event where there are no survivors, there are no museums, there are no monuments, there are no memorials, there are no videos, there are no files. That's one thing. But to talk about a 20th century event is really to try and swim upstream. So why? Well, I think in some respects, it's because the Holocaust has given anti-Semitism and anti-Semites a particularly bad name. I know that sounds odd, but as someone else once said, Stalin and Hitler, or Hitler and Stalin, both of them vehement anti-Semites, went after the Jews in such a way that even other anti-Semites found that they couldn't, after the experiences, particularly of Germany, but also of the Soviet Union and communism, they couldn't publicly appeal to a broader audience based on anti-Semitism. So what do they have to do? Well, in some cases, what they had to do was try and deny the obvious, that there was a Holocaust, there was anti-Semitism, that that was the purpose of Hitler's Third Reich. I mean, even at the end of the war, Manya, even as Germany was losing the war in its final months and weeks, the idea that it was diverting precious resources, trains, soldiers, equipment, to trying to murder still more Jews, even if it meant jeopardizing the defense of the Germans against the oncoming allies, till the last day they were killing the Jews, That's how determined they were. So this plus the fact that now along comes the state of Israel after the war. And here is a convenient way for the discredited anti-Semites, the most vehement among them, to say, well, wait a second. Hitler and Stalin made it hard for us because there are lots of people who may not like Jews, but it doesn't necessarily mean they want to embrace Auschwitz as the solution to the Jews that may be going a step too far. Ah, but now we have an alternative opportunity. Let's leave that Hitlerian anti-Semitism behind, and let's instead focus not on the Jews as individuals, but the Jewish state. And we'll call it the state of Israel, and as a result, by calling it Israel and not Jews or the Jewish state, we have a new lease on life. So we can go after the Jews again, but masquerading it as nothing to do with Jews, God forbid, but having something to do with this one state in the world that is now deemed a pariah state. It happens to be the only majority Jewish state in the world. But for the hardcore anti-Semites who couldn't quite make it into mainstream society with their distortion and their denial, here was an alternate pathway. And maybe the David Irving trial, to circle back again, was one of the final nails in the coffin. Yeah, you can still be a denier or a distorter. You can use COVID, you can use pandemics, you can use economic crises, you can use whatever you want, but you're not going to get terribly far. You're going to stay in the swamps of the edges of society. Aha! But if you now talk about Israel, then you've got much more leeway and lot more countries that are willing to go along openly. Yeah, Israel has no right to exist. You have even tragically some Jews who give cover to this movement because for their own distorted, twisted reasons, they don't want to see either Israel exist or prosper or even continue. That to me is sort of the transition from the use of Holocaust denial and distortion as the first order of business of anti-Semites, now to anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism, almost as its replacement with, you know, Holocaust denial and distortion not having been lost entirely, but becoming sort of more of a footnote to the discussion.
0: So you mentioned the book that Deborah Lipstadt wrote following the trial. It was made into a movie titled Denial. And I'm curious, in your opinion, did that help raise awareness about anti-Semitism or specifically Holocaust denial And could Hollywood do more to address anti-Semitism in all its many forms?
1: The answer is, I certainly want to believe yes. When we speak about Hollywood and, if you will, education, I think, first of all, of the NBC series Holocaust, which takes us back, if I recall, to the 1970s, which had an extraordinary impact on understanding, awareness, and education. And I believe it was translated into many languages, so it was not limited to the United States. I think to a movie like Schindler's List, which again had, even though there have been many Holocaust movies and some superb Holocaust movies, because of the craftsmanship of Steven Spielberg, it had a particular impact as well. Obviously, the Deborah Lipstadt trial, outcome, book, and film continue this process, all to the good. However... Here we are in 2022, when we should, by by all rational thoughts, be looking at anti-Semitism in the rear view mirror. And we're not. We're seeing it in the front view mirror. We're seeing it most recently at Congregation Beth Israel in Texas, but obviously not only, not the first. We're seeing it on social media in a thousand ways. We're seeing it tied together with the two-year-old pandemic. We are seeing it in the ongoing vilification of the state of Israel, including calls by another government, Iran, for the elimination of that state. So I would love to say that we are on a linear path downward from the heights of anti-Semitism in the mid 20th century with a steady decline. And obviously in many ways, we have made a lot of progress. We have. Look at Germany. The perpetrator of the Enlosung, the Final Solution, is now a democratic country in the heart of Europe with a growing Jewish community and a very strong, consistent voice against anti-Semitism, which has not eliminated anti-Semitism. However, it's made clear on what side the Germany of today stands. And I would add, by the way, that with maybe one or two exceptions, literally, no European country today has a government that supports, advocates anti-Semitism. It's a far cry from the past, not to speak of how much progress Jews have made in the United States. So when we speak about anti-Semitism today, obviously, we take note of the rise. Obviously, there's the shadow of Pittsburgh and Paulway and Charlottesville and Jersey City and uh, Muncie, New York and uh, street attacks in Brooklyn and Manhattan and Los Angeles and now Colleyville, Texas. So there is what to worry about. We need more films, more books, more of everything to combat it. But what we're talking about, Manya, suggests the resilience of antisemitism, its ability both to persist in its old forms and to reimagine itself in new forms. And that means that unless and until either Moderna or Pfizer comes up with you know, the vaccine and then the regular booster shots, We're going to need more courageous people like Deborah Lipstadt, more organizations like American Jewish Committee, more leaders like German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who who just left her post, and more reminders of the importance of Israel to the Jewish people in the world in order to stay strong and to continue to fight against this very resistant virus.
0: Well, David, thank you so much for joining us and reminding us that anti Semitism can be both blatant and insidious. And it is, as you said, quite resistant. <laughs> but we will continue the fight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Manya. In case you missed it, be sure to listen to our conversation earlier this week with three Jewish and Muslim leaders about what it was like on the ground during the hostage situation at Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas. And tune in next week for our episode marking International Holocaust Remembrance, in which we learn about the lost Jewish community of Monastir from Ladino singer and songwriter Sarah Eroesti. Please join us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is T.K. Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.